0: Hi everyone! Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week we have exclusive interviews with BC professors, alumni, student-athletes, and more. Make sure to follow The Heights on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to recommend guests you'd like to hear from and to catch up on the latest headlines. Joining us today is Father Walter J. Smith, who's been a Jesuit priest for over 60 years. A true Renaissance man, Father Smith is also a psychologist, clinician, consultant, CEO, and a lifelong cook. His book, Faith, Food, and Friendship, Reflections and Recipes from a Jesuit's Abundant Life, includes 175 recipes, reflecting cuisine from all over the world, and even an Indian dish once recommended to him by Mother Teresa. Thank you so much for being here today, Father Smith.
1: My pleasure.
0: (laughs) Um, I, for one, definitely want to hear the full anecdote of your encounter with Mother Teresa, but for now, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and how you were introduced kind of to a life of faith?
1: Yes, uh, well, of course I was born in Boston and uh, raised in a middle-class Irish community in South Boston and uh, went to Jesuit high school and then came here as a student to Boston College. Mm -hmm. Was here during my years as an undergraduate that I discerned a vocation to the Jesuits and joined the Jesuits in 1962.
0: Very nice. So you attended B.C. High and Boston College and then joined the order in, I believe, 1962? Yes. Um, So could you tell us a little bit more about what that moment looked like and the biggest impact that the Ignatian teachings had on your life?
1: Yes. Well, of course, you know, because the Jesuits had been part of my life, Like the parish in which I grew up as a boy initially was a Jesuit-run parish. It was a parish originally established to support uh, German immigrants to the United States, uh, so I had Jesuits around me almost my entire life. Um, in high school, almost all of my teachers were Jesuits, and even in those days at Boston College, out of my freshman year five courses, three of them were taught by Jesuits. So the, the Jesuit staffing at BC in the early 60s was quite different than it is today. Um, and the and the campus is quite different. You know, of course the buildings that we see on the center part of campus were there. Uh many of my classes were at gas and all. Um so it's it's nostalgic coming back to the campus, um, you know, almost like a full circle at this point in my life uh, to teach. I, Earlier, I had been the dean of the School of Theology and Ministry when it was located in Cambridge. Yes. Uh, and now I'm back teaching on that faculty. Back. So
2: You're complete back.
1: full circle. You're so Very full
2: circle. Happy. And so,
1: yes, the Jesuits have had a significant uh, impact in my life. I I, I say in, in the book, in my recollection, that as, as long as I can remember, Jesuits have been around me. And so, yes. So I, I grew up in, in you know, understanding the Jesuit tradition through the lived experience of many different Jesuits.
0: Great, nice. I think one of the biggest tenets of a Jesuit education is cura personalis, like the nurturing of the whole person, and becoming a well-rounded and well-informed citizen. And throughout your life, you've cultivated so many different interests, um, including cooking, Mm -hmm. which you've already mentioned. Can you Tell us when you discovered that you could cook.
1: Well, my mother claims that I was always interested in cooking. I didn't come from a household that was really, as I say in the book, we we ate but we never dined. (laughs) Uh, My mother, by her own admission, was a very basic cook, Uh, so uh, it's 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 surprising that I would develop any interest. the first time I actually tasted lobster was when a Jesuit took me out to dinner and, 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 and invited me to taste a lobster. So uh so I can blame the Jesuits for for this. Uh, um as an undergraduate, I I was a major in classical languages and in modern languages, particularly French. And so um, Jesuits as they progressed through the course of studies, spent a few years teaching high school in those days almost exclusively teaching high school. And so I was teaching French and I got a master's degree in French language and literature. And part of that program was uh, at the Sorbonne in Paris. And it was during those years that I walked mm-hmm. in off the street to the Côte Bleu and, uh, wow, Bleu. Wow. And, mm-hmm. uh, awesome. and through conversations there, enrolled in a year long course in French cooking. Um, the conditions were that I would uh, not retard the class because I was not a professional chef. I was not somebody that was training to become chef de cuisine in some major restaurant or hotel. Um, I was just a person that was interested. And in the Cordon Bleu in those years, there was nothing like continuing education or adult education. In the Cordon Bleu today, yes, it does still train professionals for for work in, in professional kitchens but in those days it, it wasn't training um you know people that want to go take a course like your mothers might decide to go the, to paris for two weeks and take cooking classes uh, that was i mean now it's their you know, bread and butter they they make their margin on 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 uh, those kind of people uh, but in, in those years uh mid 60s that was not uh, the case at all so th- i was uh, somewhat of an anomaly uh, you know, a, a Jesuit studying at the Sorbonne, an American, no cooking experience, and presenting myself to be part of what was a professional training program. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the uh, and I, I, I sort of talk about that a little bit in in, in the narrative how I walked in and uh, met the director and uh, and you know pick, picked her curiosity enough that she was willing to take a chance. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. And, uh, and, uh, with classical training, then I was very much interested. And then my years, I worked, uh, for the Holy See as a consultant for 15 years. So I was back and forth to Rome four times a year, maybe spending 60 to 80 days a year in Rome. And, uh, and I got very interested in regional Italian cooking with my basic training. I, I really could understand. Um, regions developed different recipes. And that's how my culinary repertoire expanded.
2: Talk about good
0: food in Rome, right?
1: <laughs> yes. That there was a phrase there, si mangia bene, si spende poco. You eat well and you spend little. Now you eat well and you spend a lot.
0: Very true. You're a lesson to all of us. We talk all the time about taking every opportunity that comes your way, but you also have to. Walk
1: in, knock on doors that you don't. Yeah, people, I, I, right? you know, um, you know, I, I I actually learned this later when I was working in New York um, and having to do a lot of fundraising. And uh, one of one of the people that was one of my mentors and became a very good friend was Lawrence Rockefeller mm-hmm. and uh, of the Rockefeller family. And uh, I remember Mr. Rockefeller saying one time about philanthropy, and I think it's applicable to many things in our life. About If you're if you're prepared for the answer, no, you can do almost anything. I mean, if if the worst thing somebody can say to you is no, then isn't it worth the risk to try it? Because more often they're going to say, well, I'll give you a chance or maybe or yes. So uh, that was the that was the strategy. Walk in and ask if she said no, well, what's lost? All right. right?
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's something Isabel and I have talked about all the time, even with other guests. Like just taking those chances yes, and
1: yeah, putting yourself out there. Absolutely, and, you know, stepping out uh, out of your comfort zone, out of your margin where you're secure, uh, and uh, you'd be surprised what you experience. It's uh, great, and certainly, you know, my my uh, cooking and my engagement has been so amplified. By just taking those risks.
0: Clearly, cooking for you is not as much of a chore as it is for some of the rest of us. Um, And what, like, an amazing and unique experience? I mean, what, obviously, there was a lot of fun and challenges that came with that. What would you say were the most challenging parts of that experience for you? You Meaning cooking? In the cooking and while you were in Paris? Well,
1: I mean, first, I had to keep up with the people that, you know, they, Many French chefs start this when they're teenagers, they apprentice in restaurants before they even go to cooking school. So many of these students had had two or three years of apprenticeship uh, in line cooking in, in you know, small restaurants or or, or even in hotels. And now we're looking to get the training that would position them to be executive chefs and In institutions, Uh, and so keeping up with them was 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 a challenge. I was living at that time at the Rue de Grenelle, which was a Jesuit residence, um, and uh, it was in the in the Latin Quarter, the university area of Paris. Uh, And I remember going down at that that time. The house probably had eighty or so Jesuits living in a very large house. And, uh, and many guests coming through Paris, like myself. Uh, and so I spoke with the chef about just simply helping out in the kitchen by doing vegetables, because I had to learn the chopping skills, and I had to... One day I was... The, there, uh, what we were working on was turning vegetables. Sometimes you see in a in a very high-end restaurant, like the carrots, they look all perfect and all the same size. Well, they've, they've actually been turned... And, um, and so the chef said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm turning carrots. He said, We don't turn carrots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I have to learn. So, you know, for, for, you today, we, for right? today we have to turn carrots. <laughs> so, yes, I, 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 you know, that was a challenge keeping up. Because I was also following full academic program in school. Mm-hmm. So this had to somehow fit in. there mm-hmm.
2: you know.
1: Uh, so that was, that was probably the bigger challenge. Uh, and then of course, the language was another challenge. Uh, you know, I've been reading, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century French literature, and now I'm in the kitchen, and I don't have the whole vocabulary from the kitchen. Right. So learning that. And also, it mean, you know, it was very good training because I was in a, in a, in intensive French speaking milieu. Uh, that was another challenge. Uh, And and, uh, Madame Roussard, the director, she said that to me. If you pull pull back the course in any way, you're out. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay.
0: You must be an expert in the French language
2: for cooking that. I I,
1: I, I can work my way through a menu. In fact, one of my nephews just last week was with his wife for Valentine's Day at a very exclusive Boston French restaurant. He texted me a a, a screenshot of the menu saying, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so I typed back quickly to tell him what he was thinking about possibly ordering. He <laughs> well, should have had
0: you cook, right? <laughs> doesn't, need to go to a restaurant. <laughs> doesn't need to go to a restaurant now. I'll take advantage of that. <laughs> They've
1: had plenty of opportunities to taste my cooking. Oh, good. One time I the family did invite me to prepare Thanksgiving dinner. And my younger sister and I collaborated on doing this and we did we did the classic dishes, but more in a French style, for example, with the turkey, we loosened the skin and we then put herbs under the skin and you know basted it and basted it in in a wine reduction and so it, 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 from a from a presentation and culinary perspective was great um, and we were sitting at the table, and families all gathered and they're tasting their various things. And, my younger brother uh, says, you have ruined Thanksgiving. It doesn't taste anything like Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's French Thanksgiving, So right? in other words, French
2: Thanksgiving. In all, all
1: the traditional Thanksgiving. tastes weren't there. So as a result, uh, I wrecked Thanksgiving with my classic yeah. French take on all these things. So. I don't know
0: if I would use the word around. So yeah, I, I think that's
1: a nice try. little twist. Yeah. From the from the perspective of a teenager who was used to my mother's very uh, glutinous stuffing, it was wrecked. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> wrecked. Not mom's. But,
1: hmm. but the, the family has uh, has grown in its uh, palate and uh, and now does appreciate far more. You're expanding uh, their Yes, and, and and I would say that you know among my the next generation. My, my nephews and nieces, are, by and large, they're very good cooks, and they have an interest in cooking. And, uh, of course, you know, they're very much interested in what I would contribute to their knowledge base as well.
2: Yes, well.
0: I'm interested in that, too, because in addition to cultivating those culinary skills, you have acquired a worldly taste from travel throughout the globe. Um, how do you ex- kind of incorporate those experiences that you had Um, engaging with other cultures, engaging with other cuisine, um, and kind of the conversations you had with different people of different regions into your teaching now at the School of Theology
1: and Ministry? Well, you know, you asked earlier about sort of certain Jesuit uh, principles. And one of the things that Ignatius asked of all Jesuits, was that wherever they are sent that they acculturate they they immerse themselves in the culture they learn the language where they are they adapt to the culinary patterns of the people there so you basically become like people that you're living among uh you don't super impose your you know say well I only eat mashed potatoes and and uh, steak uh you you try and you open yourself up to it so i think that that sort of philosophy of of immersion in cultures and 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 taking on the dress the uh the um culinary habits of that of that culture so that that's been my and and i think that's probably uh at least in my philosophy of, of of travel you know the that when I go uh, I want to eat not in the fancy restaurants that might be in the Michelin Guide, <laughs> but rather the, the, the off the, off the beaten track where the local people are eating. Uh, if I go into a Chinese restaurant that's full of Americans, that's not a Chinese restaurant I want to be in, <laughs> but if I walk in and I'm the only angle in that place, I, I, I definitely want to be there. Because this is where that culture dies, and uh, and uh, and I want to eat what they That's eat. What and, and so, in Italy, for example, um, the part of how many of how these recipes were developed was going into a trattoria and saying, "What is the uh, the specialty of this particular little place?" Mm-hmm. And or uh, well, what's the special dish today? And then and order them, and then ask them how they make it,
0: whatever they pride themselves on, must be what yeah. they invest the most
1: time. And right. and 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 so in a in a little place, or you know, where you come in and you open yourself up to what they, and then you ask them how they make it. Can we see fun? That that opens up a world of experience, uh, because often i been was invited into the kitchen, where they basically said, "Here, we're going to make make this dish." Well, you right in front of your eyes mm-hmm. so you learn exactly how they do it and that's how many of these recipes were developed me. Mm-hmm. from that question <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's such a great experience and i mean i think that's something that anybody listening could take into their travel experience too and just going to these places that are more local but you also get to see kind of the beauty in these cultures and different um parts of humanity that you wouldn't necessarily experience elsewhere um, so I'm curious, in your experience, did you ever find yourself sort of questioning your relationship with God as you were going through all of these different parts of life?
1: It's a really penetrating question. Uh, uh, did I ever really question my relationship to God? Um, it's going to seem like a strange answer, but the answer is really no, um, um, my my life of faith has been reasonably organic um and uh and that doesn't mean that there weren't times of challenge or questioning but fundamentally it was a it was it was a grace life in that regard um and sometimes in looking back on it i think that maybe god has has given me that particular gift because my work has taken me into into a lot of chaos in people's lives and uh so in some ways if you, if you take a metaphor of a, of a harbor my life of faith has been more like a tranquil harbor into which ships that have been tossed on great seas have come and they've come into that harbor to rest and they can rest in that life and i think so i think the tranquility of my faith life has really uh, is a condition for for how I've been able to make myself available for so many years uh, to people whose lives have been not so tranquil or not so calm.
2: I think
0: right now, as a professor, um, you are also a clinical specialist in palliative and end-of-life care.
1: That's correct.
0: Um, What prompted you, again, to say, I have another interest, I have another way in which I can expand my knowledge and also offer that counsel to other people and maybe to people towards the end of their life who are tossed in those
1: difficult waters. Yeah, I mean, I told you that initially my interests were in language and literature, um, very humanistic studies. uh, And so while I was teaching high school, I was teaching juniors and seniors and honors classes. Who were going through a lot of developmental changes in their own life, differentiating from themselves from their parents, dealing with relationships, um, you know, trying to figure out who am I and the rest. And they were seeking me out as their teacher for, for counseling. I really felt inadequate. I didn't have any training in counseling. So I started taking graduate courses in counseling psychology just to get some basics, um, to be able to be a better student counselor. Um, And that opened up my eyes to the field of psychology. Um, And uh, and then I did an internship, which then expanded that even further. And then after ordination, I began a doctoral program in clinical psychology. And and that was a, a great experience as well. And when it came time to doing the dissertation, which is an integral part of the program in studying at a PhD level, um, I had to pick a topic for my dissertation, and I chose something that I didn't know very much about, and that was aging and death. And uh, and I developed a study that uh, forced me to interview 120 women who had lost their husbands. Wow. And uh, it was uh, paper and pencil. The women agreed to fill out some small inventories on death anxiety and depression. Uh, but also it was a structured interview such as this, where I posed a number of questions and then collected those data and analyzed the semantics of what they said and how they talked, about words they used, etc, to understand what their patterns of recovery were. And that brought me into the field of death and dying. And, uh, so most of my professional work, uh, you know, my writing has been books, other books, not the cookbook, <laughs> but, um, other books have been on death and dying. And issues like, uh, when, when HIV became a, a real pandemic concern, uh, I did a book on HIV care. So, so I've been working in, in that field as a clinician for a number of years. Um, most of my adult career in New York, when I was CEO of a healthcare nonprofit, we were providing the spiritual care services on a multi-faith basis in 28 hospitals in Greater New York, and uh, we were the largest training school for chaplains in the United States, uh, and uh, and th- and that brought me very intensively into the conversation on palliative medicine, um, which was beginning to to grow an ascendancy of interest. Um, um, I served uh, in New York on a commission. I was a fellow of the New York Academy of Medicine, and and in that role, I I helped to develop the curriculum for palliative care for the medical schools of New York. So, um, and, and our organization was in the forefront of, of setting up a specialized uh, licensure for chaplains who are involved in this kind of area, um, just as there are special um, licenses for physicians and nurses and social workers, so for chaplains as well. And now that I'm back here in Boston, um, after finishing those many years in New York, uh, I'm, I serve on the Newton Wellesley Hospital, in Mass General uh, Brigham system on the Palliative Care Commission. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I, am still keeping my thumb in it. And, and, uh, the Dean at the School of Theology and Ministry asked me if I would be willing to develop some courses that, that, uh, focus on pastoral counseling and from within a life cycle perspective. And also, I'm teaching currently this semester a course called Healing Ministries, which focuses on the four big areas of, of a serious illness, a disability, trauma, and death. So, yes, it's uh, in a sense, it's bringing together all of that, those years of clinical experience and refocusing them now in, in training programs for those both lay and ordained who will be involved in, in pastoral ministries and pastoral care.
0: I think that's very important because we also have to evaluate how we treat aging yes. and how we allow people to age with dignity and with grace. I actually had a conversation with a nurse who's in the graduate program here, and he was a theology major in undergrad, and he actually compared the body to his relationship with faith and with God. Yes. And he said, both are mystery. We'll never fully understand either one. Um, sleep sometimes you need rest sometimes you need silence to understand your relationship to God and he went on and on in kind of combining those two passions of his Yeah. Um, so I think part of the discernment that we need to do right now um, is how we can get at the root of the issues and the things that matter to us and find That's how we can right. combine them right Yeah, I mean, I think there are probably a lot of students here and just any other listeners who might be questioning, you know, how to balance their faith with different interests. Like you talked about um, you doing your internship and being in New York. There are a lot of students, I think, who are kind of experiencing a similar thing. How would you recommend they try to balance work and all their different interests while also keeping a strong faith regardless of their religion?
1: Well. You you like to think that faith is an, is an integral variable, you in know, that it that it weaves. It's like a it's like a thread that has been woven into your life. Uh if it's if it's carefully woven in, yes you can you can trace it, but it looks so organic to the whole of the tapestry or the fabric, uh that it that it has become a part of all of the dimensions in your life. It's not as if it's somehow segregated outside of it. It is it is really integrated with your life. Mm-hmm. And and that's what, you know, the Ignatian uh, sense of, of of discovering God in all of the experiences of one's life, not just, you know, when you go into a chapel. That's that's a special experience perhaps of of, of relationship to the divine. Um and you know, it's mediated through the architecture and through the visuals of the light penetrating through Stained glass or, or whatever the experience may be, the mediating experience. That's, that's one experience, but that's such a small portion of your lived experience of living. Uh, and the, the rest of your life, God is in that too.
2: Yeah, uh, and right
1: and God space. is there to be discovered, right. um, and, 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 uh, and, and relished and, 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 and experienced in, In that intimacy, and that's what we're talking here about Mm -hmm. trying not to further compartmentalize our lives, but to bring all of the elements of our life together. You talk about core Mm personalis, the whole goal of core core personalis is bringing together the mind, the body, and the spirit. Whether it's in the study of language and literature or science and mathematics or engineering or whatever the field might be, business or business ethics. It's, it's trying to find the, the the integrators in the mind, body, spirit so that we're not just simply compartments, but that we're a whole and to support that whole. That's the goal of Jesuit education is to support the whole.
0: Do you have any general advice for those students who want to find the hole and who want to make meaning in their lives but who feel lost right
2: now?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, knowing that you're lost is the first step. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that, that's so obvious. That, and 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 not being reticent to reach out from that position and asking for help mm-hmm. and being open to accepting help or even being ready to be surprised by where help might be. So that's the very first step in almost all of these twelve step programs, whether it's in alcohol or food addictions or whatever it may be. Um the first step is the acknowledgement that you have a need mm-hmm. that you can't solve on your own and that you have to open it and surrender it to to others to to support you. We are social beings you know we we depend on each other, you know, yes, independence is a value, but dependence is also a value healthy dependence on others is a good thing, it's not a bad thing so to 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 reach out and to ask for help there's so many resources on this campus um you know they're they're well advertised, but you know people don't use them. It's They're here, but you, they don't use them.
0: We are ending where we began. You have to knock on the door. You're you have ended. to
1: knock on the door, yes.
0: Right. Have to take advantage. And of course, the gospel
1: says that, doesn't it? Knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and you will find. Ask,
0: and you will receive. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: you got it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay.
0: Well, before we go, we would love to hear about your experience with Mother Teresa that we mentioned at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I'd
1: be happy to. Uh, it happened that I was in Rome, uh, right after ordination and was doing what is called tertianship, which is the last year of Jesuit formation. It's a year of spiritual. You make the ex- full exercises again, and then you're involved in some apostolic works. Part of my apostolic work was teaching at Gregorian University in Rome, which is one of the older Jesuit institutions of higher education. And, um, and uh, the Tertian instructor, the man that was supervising my year of formation, uh, had agreed to do a triduum, three nights with Mother Teresa's novices in Rome. And uh, And then when he looked at his calendar, he realized that he was also scheduled to give a major address at a theological meeting in Milano. So he asked me if I would substitute for him for this three night trinum with Mother Teresa's novices. I said, I'd be glad to. He said, it was very easy. Just give them a talk, celebrate Mass, and then uh, on the 8th of December, celebrate the Mass at the Basilica of Mary Major, Maria Maggiore, where they will pronounce their vows. I said, that's a very easy assignment. So I went over and when I, knocked on the door, the superior greeted me, and she said, "Father, there's only one thing that I need to tell you, and that is that Mother Teresa has arrived here today,
2: okay. and
1: she desires to make this triduum with the novices." Wow! So I said, "Of course. Well, maybe Mother Teresa would like to give the triduum," and uh, they said, "Oh no, Mother wants to just no, no changes, just and uh, and so I was seated with Mother Teresa for supper. Next three months.
0: Imagine oh not your gosh. average substitute teacher, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, Mother Teresa is not a foodie. So um, you know, we talked about many, many different things. But in the course of the conversation, I asked her, "Is there any particular food that you, you know, like?" Or um, you know, you know, and she said. She talked about this particular Indian dish uh, that uh, she said is a peasant dish and, and it's shared. And of course, in India, uh, people sit down and they, with their hands, they eat from a common dish. And, uh, and, this, and this is a rice and bean type of a dish. And so she described it to me. And afterwards, she didn't give me the recipe. As I said, Mother Teresa was not a foodie. But I went back and I, I researched the recipe and found it and, and so I've included mm-hmm. that uh in tribute to Mother Teresa in the book.
2: Interesting, Interesting all even, even her
0: favorite food was kind of a spiritual experience where
1: you yeah, you're she and she talked about she talked about, you know, her in her in her family that her mother said that that, that, you know, we, we have an obligation to share food with each other. We It's, it's, it's an experience, a very human experience. And, so, and she talked about that, but with the, particularly the poor, and, you know, to, to share from a common dish how important that was. And, uh, so those are the things she talked about. And that's how Mother Teresa got into my book. Oh, and my gosh. Mother Teresa has the attribution of this recipe. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I think
0: that's all we have for you today. Thank you it so, is. so much. You are
1: very, very welcome. Thank it's you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of Heights. Make sure you follow The Heights on Instagram and Facebook to recommend guests. And check out The Heights Facebook and Twitter pages every Monday for the latest headlines. See you next time. Bye.